This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Last weekend, I was in uh, Atlantic City with a lot of people that are not from South Jersey, a lot of people from North Jersey, a lot of people from New York, people from Pennsylvania, people from uh, South Carolina, people from Florida, people from Texas. And for a lot of folks that are visiting that place for the first time, you get in a discussion of the history. And we ended up having a little bit of a party, not a little bit, pretty large party, on uh, a great little spot with a view of the whole Atlantic City skyline. A place called, well, it doesn't matter the place. So, and you look out at the skyline and you see people would point out, oh, there's that. What used to be there? Oh, there's that. What used to be there? Oh, there's that. Where was that? Oh, no, no, no. That's where that always was? No, 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 no. It used to be there. So, inevitably, any discussion of... Atlantic City between 1985 and 2006 involves Donald Trump because the guy was a key player in Atlantic City for a long time. And his company was a key player in Atlantic City for a long time. And um, one of the things that Trump did successfully, particularly at the Trump Taj Mahal, but really at all his properties, Trump Taj Mahal, just now the hard rock, is he would have these prominent boxing matches there especially uh, those featuring Mike Tyson. They were big all over the world. It's a funny thing. I happened to catch up on all the news um, when I came back on uh, Sunday, New Year's Eve, and there were two very interesting articles in the New York Daily News that had to do with boxing. Because So when I was talking to all these people about Atlantic City and its history, I, I would talk about the Trump Taj Mahal and this Tyson fight and the Tyson and Bruce Seldon, Tyson and Lennox Lewis, and all these great Tyson fights that occurred. And it got me thinking, and I was smacked with this headline in the New York Daily News. Does the sport of boxing have a future? And the Daily News describes, I think pretty accurately, how boxing has failed to replace and replenish its audience. You see, exactly five years ago, HBO pulled out of the boxing business, which was a shock to the sport. And HBO has had a lot of big fights over the years. Joe Frazier and George Foreman was their first big fight. And then they had all the classics, Foreman and Muhammad Ali, Ali Frazier, uh, two and three, Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy the Hitman Hearns, one and two, Mike Tyson, Buster Douglas with that big upset. Now, Showtime Sports, as of a couple of weeks ago, which was HBO's longtime rival 
in televising boxing has, shall we say, taken a 10 count. Showtime is out of the boxing business. They've had their own runs, uh, their own memorable series of boxing events. Tyson Holyfield 1 and 2, among others. HBO and Showtime, they even partnered up for Lennox Lewis versus Tyson and Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao. Now they're both gone. Boxing fans have, uh, they've always suffered withdrawals as they've seen certain aspects of how boxing is televised go away. But um, boxing used to be a huge deal. I remember the excitement of a heavyweight championship fight. I think there was a series of about six years, seven years of my life, that every single heavyweight fight, uh, championship fight, it was an event. An event. You had to be somewhere to make sure you were watching it. Were you going to order it on pay-per-view? Was someone going to invite you over? Or are all the guys going to split the costs or one guy going to pay? Oh, if he pays, what are you going to bring? It was almost like there was the Super Bowl, a version of the Super Bowl, almost of that magnitude, by the way. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Every six months, it was a really big deal. Now, it's difficult for me to remember who the heavyweight champion of the world is without looking it up. Um. So what has happened to boxing that just 50 years ago, the sport was still a major draw for sports fans? You remember the glory of the 1976 Olympic boxing um, team. You remember, you know, the uh, things like um, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. What a big deal that was. Now, I don't get the sense that people care about boxing as a spectator sport at all. I'm curious not why you think this has occurred, because, look, I think the reasons are pretty obvious. One, I think it's the rise of MMA. I think you're seeing a lot of people that would have been uh, you know, uh, boxing fans years ago, now they just follow mixed martial arts. And I think the other thing is so many people shy away from b- boxing because they hear all these stories about head injuries, brain injuries. So both as athletes and maybe even as fans, they think this is basically the modern day equivalent of um, watching the Romans uh, at, at the Coliseum. I want to know, do you think the sport of boxing has a future. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Does boxing have a future? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. You see, the second of these daily news articles came out on New Year's Eve They had experts weigh in to predict the future of the sport. And you had a lot of people with very interesting ideas. Uh, Former world champion Roy Jones Jr. He says the key to boxing's future is the top fighters fighting each other again. Okay, okay, I can buy that. I think it kind of needs to be something more. So 
One, I'm curious if you think boxing has a future. Two, I'm curious if you think, um, if you have an idea of what you would do if you were in charge of boxing. Because certainly, forget about the Ali level, there doesn't seem to be anywhere near the level of interest that there was when Mike Tyson was doing his thing. I don't think that's my perception at all. I think that's a fact. 800-848-9222. Um, JR is in Brooklyn. What do you think, JR? Hey, good, uh, good morning. Hey, uh, JR, you're, you're breaking up. I'm going to put you on hold. See if you can get to a better area if you, uh, if you can, or just get a better phone connection. And if you can, we'll uh, certainly be happy to talk to you. 800-848-9222. Daniel listening on uh, Ann Arbor. Uh, Daniel, are you listening on the, the Superstation AM 910? The 910 blowtorch out of Detroit, Michigan, although I myself am located in Ann Arbor. Wonderful. Well, I I appreciate you listening. We love all our listeners in the Michigan uh, area, Dan. Welcome. Uh, New Year's blessings upon you, fellow lover of historical unsolved mysteries. Thank you. I'll take the, uh, I could use all the blessings I could get, New Year or otherwise. I'd like to take you right back to Marvin uh, Barris, and uh, I listened with great interest, and I, I noticed that you threw a question at him, which, to use a baseball metaphor, would be like a, a fastball just under the chin, and he, he couldn't handle it. And that was the $64,000 question, which is, what is the relevance of that, Marvin, which you have just labored so hard at and which you want us to get immersed in. And I don't think he really answered, but I'd like to give a try right here now pretty briefly. I think it's the answer, Frank, is because it's real and because it's a story. And if something is real and it's a story and it's well presented, we can get Mm into it and we can immerse in it and we can time travel to it and we can link our time now and we expand out of what's trending now and our sense of what is relevant to our life that we can learn from and grow from because it's actual experience and it's real and it's a story then we can that's why people as i was saying to matt your your screener that's why people can get into a movie set in the 1700s even though 1700s are gone it's because now is then and then is now through the imagination. And that's a story well told. And to take it further into your Hulk Hogan documentary, you were in that space of expanded and enriched as long as the documentary was real and a story. But the moment it turned into a propaganda piece or anything other than real and story, then the link is broken and the magic is gone. But that's the magic of being able to get into history. Well, hey, well said, Daniel. I, uh, I may have to, if I'm ever at a uh, loss of words for why whatever I'm talking about is important, I may have to uh, reach out to you. I mean, uh, that's a, a great, very astute analysis. Well, 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 thank you. So I just, you know, um, obviously, you, you, you're like one of those guys who goes into a neighborhood and he's always ready to get his dukes up. Every time you put up one of these historical pieces, you know people are yawning and falling asleep. In well, some I hope, cases, I hope but, it, but, but, it, but if you can give people, it's like an acquired taste. But once you get a taste for it, it's like fiction is just a hokum after a while. Yeah, Daniel, I, uh, I agree with you. I agree with you very much. And uh, that's one of the reasons that, um, you know, that I gave Marvin the opportunity to ex- frame the, the, the answer to the question that way. I appreciate the helping hand you gave him. Daniel, uh, now that you've gotten the habit of calling, please make it a regular habit. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Let's go back to JR. In Brooklyn. Hello, JR. 
Hey, good morning. Sorry about that. That's I was okay. by the airport. Sure. So I think there's a couple of different elements that are that have caused the decline of boxing. Early on, it was the two-minute heavyweight fights or the Mike Tyson one-rounders that really uh, took away from paying for those pay-per-views. Number two, MMA has put a huge dent in boxing, especially with its popularity. So do you think at this point boxing does have a future? Yes, absolutely. Do you remember, you're probably old enough to remember when ABC used to have afternoon fights? Absolutely, yeah. And it was a card for the whole afternoon. I think they need to go back to that to have a easier accessibility for uh, like a common viewing, if that makes sense. I like that. So it's, we need something on broadcast TV, not just cable. Correct. Broadcast TV. And it needs to be younger boxers on a, not an amateur level per se, but something that's really more of like a grassroots campaign almost to get back to the, you know, an easier way to view it. Do you think, it would be better for the sport if there were more prominent American boxers. No, I don't think it. I don't think it's like a. Uh, uh, I don't think it's a cultural like soccer. You know that 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 you can you can make the argument, but I don't think boxing is because of its. You know, it's a one-on-one sport that you see. You know, everybody wants to box after they mm-hmm. watch a boxing match. Right, right, exactly. Everyone thinks they can box someone. You know what I mean? How many fights were started at bars? When but there was but let me ask you, though, uh, JR, and, and then I want to get to some other people as well. So you think sure. boxing has a sport, and the challenge is how it's distributed to, uh, to you know, for, to be more accessible to 21st century fans. If MMA has so skyrocketed in popularity and has cut into what would have been the market share of boxing fandom— why will that, say, uh, regular broadcast networks showing boxing, why will that help bring fans back to the sport as opposed to MMA? Um, again, because you, you'll have a better promotion of it. Um, you'll see if, let's say, we'll use ABC for an example, they'll be promoting it on the news. They'll be promoting it with, oh, you just watched that fight or stay tuned to this fight. There's more promotion gotcha. of it. Gotcha. Gotcha. For a broadcast television. Well, I think it's worth a shot. Uh, thank you, JR. You know, I have mixed views with respect to boxing. I've always been a fan of the sport, right? I've always really enjoyed it. But look, it is dangerous. And, uh, you know, I've done interviews with uh, people like Peter McNeely and others. And I've always, I always kind of feel a little guilty doing those kind of interviews and wondering, well, am I promoting something that's harmful for people? So. You know, similar to what I felt about horse racing from time to time. 800-848-9222. Lou is on Long Island. Hi, Lou. Yes, good morning. Uh, morning. I think boxing is going the way of bullfighting and dog racing. It's societal pressure that people, you know, the snowflake generation, I don't want to make broad cases about that, but they just see it as brutal and it should not be on TV. It kind of promotes violence in their eyes. I see it as a sweet sport. I would never do it. I know people, I have friends of mine that were, you know, semi pro, you know, they dabbled and I saw them the next day and I was like, holy crap, I'm not doing that. At Lou, why then, how do you explain the rise of MMA? 
Well, it's definitely garnering a younger audience. Right, it's, but aren't those the same brutal, people? Is, is that, less rules. Right, but aren't those the same people that you're saying are snowflakes? Good point. I think there's an element there of uh, young people that are obviously are really into it because of its popularity. I, I personally don't like it at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, boxing is a stand-up skill. And I'm not saying MF, whatever it is, isn't. But it's not on the level that I think boxing yeah, is. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, by the way, on that. You know, and, and one and of I the... Was, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Lou. I thought you were uh, done with your thought. I apologize. Um, one of the things that I think did hurt boxing is that you'd have these heavily promoted heavyweight boxing fights where, say, Riddick Bowe versus Evander Holyfield, both talented fighters, and so much of the fight would be them kind of bear-hugging each other, not very much action. And then for a while, you saw the action and the, the fandom and the interest move from the heavyweight division to the middleweight division. You saw uh, people like uh, Oscar De La Hoya, Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather. They were the fights that people were then watching. It became, you know, the heavyweight thing was a... a, a, a you know, a thing of the past. Now, it just seems like all of boxing has seen a waning of interest. My question is, does boxing have a future? 800-848-9222. What do you think, Steve in Las Vegas? Hello, Steve. Yeah, hi. You know, the problem with boxing, they don't have the big personalities anymore. Me personally, when Tyson retired, I abandoned boxing completely um you know you go back to the 50s you had these big personalities like uh sugar ray robinson rocky marciano uh cassius clay mike tyson sugar ray leonard and you don't have these personalities in it they're stiffs they have no personalities it's boring there's no drama and you don't have any great rivals you know ali frazier duran leonard so all of those things have played into why uh, the interest in boxing is diminishing. And as far as the AMM, AMA fighting, to me, it's human pit bull fighting. I, I, I deplore it. So do you think at this point boxing has a future? Oh, I think so. Uh, if you can get some talented fighters out there with personalities that are bigger than life i think you can make a comeback but and, and you know, also understand the best athletes are no longer becoming boxers mm -hmm. no one wants to get hit in the right. face for a living right. well i think i think you put your finger on it i think that's a big part of the problem yeah yeah absolutely but you know There's, where there I... hasn't been anyone there hasn't been anyone in the heavyweight division that has matched mike tyson and that's the problem. Well, I, I don't think there's been anybody on the planet that has Mike, has matched Mike Tyson. The one area, and thanks for the call, Steve, that maybe I'd part company with you is, you know, Tyson Fury, is, who I think is one of the heavyweight champions, uh, right, he, one of the heavyweight champions right now, but he's a character. I mean, he, the guy's a monster. You know, he's, uh, I think, 6'9", and even though he's a little older, he's 35, the guy is a character. He really is. And those uh, those battles with uh, Dante Wilder were great rivalries. I don't know that they ever generated the kind of interest of, say, Ali Frazier or Tyson Holyfield, though. 800-848-9222. Does boxing have a future? Joe is in the Bronx. Hey, Joe. 
Yeah, hi, Frank. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for calling. Okay. Yeah, uh, I've called once before to mention that Mike Tyson is my cousin. Uh, Cousin D'Amato was my uncle. Uh, And I, uh, I think boxing does have a future if we... It's true. If we do bring together personalities, if you have a backstory, Mike Tyson had a backstory. He was adopted by Customato as a teenager, okay? And uh, Customato trained him all the way up through the Olympics, through professional boxing. And you have to have that story, that, as you mentioned, that personality. You have to make viewers care about the boxer. You have to present more belt fights, more championship fights. You have to build up these boxes. It's a blood sport. Hey, if you can't take the blood sport, go watch tennis, okay? As far as I'm concerned, Mike Tyson brought it. Mike Tyson brought it. Even Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. Mm. His eight-bout chariot Right, uh, I watched that. I ordered it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to have these legends or, or near legends fighting for something that is valuable, okay? That's, that's relevant. Not just any crappy, you know, boxers fighting in a ring. This is the problem with boxing today. Hey, uh, Build by up the way, these boxes. Don't tear them down. Joe, since you um, are the nephew of Customato, there's a guy that calls this program regularly, Rocco in Saratoga. He also right. claims to be the nephew of Customato. Is that a relation well, of he's yours? he's my brother, Frank. Oh, he's oh, he my is. brother. Okay, yes. all right. But now, you don't call every single day like he does, though. What's your problem? Right. What's my problem? I, you know, I'm a great listener to your show, Um and I, you know, like a lot of the topics you cover, and I will be calling more often from now on. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you brought up boxing and Tyson and all this stuff. Um, but no, I don't have a problem per se, but this topic just piques my interest. I got you, Joe. Thank you. I appreciate it. Call often. We don't, we'll, we'll give you the Rocco Award one of these days, okay? Okay. All right. Thank, thank you, you, Joe. 800-848-9222. By the way, coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to talk with uh, Elliot Gordon about the passing of uh, Shecky Green. He was one of the first people that I thought of when um, when we got word that uh, that Shecky Green uh, passed away. So I'm uh, looking forward to chatting with him about why Shecky Green's legacy still matters. Dave is in Harriman. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank. Love the show. Thank you. Quick comments on, uh, quick comments on the boxing. I love boxing, and... You know, I was so bummed out this weekend, or they had uh, about six heavyweight fights in Riyadh. And uh, it was a little, you know, I couldn't get it. It was on pay-per-view or, you know, uh, Daz, D-A-Z-E. A lot of, like, you know, they just don't have the fights with it anymore. Um, HBO doesn't cover it as much. Showtime hasn't had fights in a while. You know, like you said, Saturday afternoon, there used to be bouts on, and, um, you know, even on Channel 5, uh, occasionally on Saturday nights, they'd have fights, and uh, just anymore, who can afford the pay-per-view? You know, they get 100 bucks, and, right. you know, it's just tough. I used to go to Ice World, actually, to see a lot of the local fights, all the up-and-comers back in the uh, mid-'70s and, and early-'80s, and I guess there were a lot of Olympic fighters uh Young guys that had great cards, like maybe 12 bouts, and like, you know, local guys, uh, you know, uh, it was just a lot of fun, and I just miss it. It just, 
seems well, to Dave, be drying I, that, up. That would actually seem to go hand in hand with what Jr. was saying, which is that if there was a better way that was more accessible for more people to watch, then the fans would come. So that's interesting that you say that same thing. Dave, thank you. You know, I think a lot of people know who David Dinkins was, the former mayor of New York City. A lot, I don't know that a lot of people know who his son is. His son is David Dinkins Jr., and he was the senior vice president and executive producer of Showtime Boxing Championship, um, you know, Showtime Championship Boxing, a four-time Emmy Award winner. He's been at Showtime since the 80s. He's done probably over 600 championship bouts. Most of that time he was in the truck producing them. And basically, you know, he says when asked by the Daily News, what comes next with both HBO and Showtime pulling the plug? And what he said essentially is there will be these occasional mega fights, but if the fighters don't take control of their own sport, which is one of the things nobody mentioned, the machinery will grind it to a halt. Boxing's motto used to be the best fighting the best. Now it's look at my shiny championship belt. Ain't it pretty? That's the word from David Dinkins Jr. I think he may have a point there. Uh, And uh, to Roy Jones Jr.'s point, maybe you need more of these great fighters tackling one another. And I think it was Joe in the Bronx that said uh, more of these rivalries along the lines of a Tyson Fury-Dante Wilder might be beneficial. All right. uh, We're going to talk about Shecky Green and more. If you want to comment on this or anything else that we have uh, covered so far, 800-848-9222. Elliot Gordon joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
minutes after the hour, the great Elton John here on the other side of midnight. Well, recently the world lost a legend who uh, not only was one of the funniest people that ever lived, but was really the last of his generation. Legendary comedian, nightclub performer, Shecky Green, passing away at the age of 97 in Las Vegas on New Year's Eve. Nobody like Shecky Green. If you're unfamiliar with Shecky Green or need a reminder of how terrific he was as an entertainer, this is what he sounded like. Think about the things, ladies and gentlemen, that came out of Hollywood. The great classic movies. Movies like The Champ with Wallace Beery and Jackie Cooper. Do you remember that scene where the champ, Wallace Beery, is talking to Dink? And he says, Hiya, Dink. Gee whiz, Dink. I know I told you I wouldn't drink or gamble anymore, but I just met a few of the boys there. Hey, Dink, when did you first realize that I was your old man? Gee, I don't know, champ. I guess I don't know. And remember the great classic that James Cagney made, and he won the Academy Award with a picture called Yankee Doodle Dandy. Mr. President, my mother thanks you. I... Hello, Dink. <laughs> Dink, when did you first realize that I was your old man? Gee, I don't know, Dad. <laughs> Since you're almost like that, folks... I think the greatest picture that ever came out of Hollywood was done by it was done by Jose Ferrar. He played the part of Cyrano de Bergerac in the scene where Roxanne is standing in the balcony, and he has his sword in his hand, and he speaks thus in the shadows of the night: "Roxanne, I look to thee. Though you cannot see me, I'm hiding in the night, for you are the only thing that I want in my life. I would love to grab you, hold you, squeeze you, kiss you. God has seen fit to make me the greatest swordsman in all the world, and yet." I would throw it away just for the kiss of thy. If I but can once remove this nose, this ugly nose. Thus. I'm going to say, right then, I love you. <laughs> you don't know how I love you, right then. Hey. Yeah. And how about the movie music? There are not a lot of entertainers of any stripe, particularly not a lot of comedians, that have had the incredible success and the incredible longevity of Shecky Green. Someone who we've talked with about Shecky Green before, we've talked about Shecky Green with before, I should say, is Elliot Gordon, regular guest on this program, entrepreneur, former aide to Mayor Giuliani, a producer and talent agent. Elliot, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Happy New Year. I love it, Frank. Happy New Year to you and the gang. It's, you know, so much fun being with you. And I was just I was just thinking, being up this late with you, and I love it. I remember Tommy Dreesen, our buddy, who spent so many years with Frank Sinatra, told me, he said, El, the tough part wasn't working the shows. The toughest part was staying up all night with him, <laughs> drinking and telling stories. Well, I don't make you stay up and drink with me, uh, uh, Elliot. I can do that if that makes me more Sinatra-esque, believe me. Hey, uh, speaking of Tommy Dreesen and uh, Frank Sinatra, now, Shecky Green was Frank Sinatra's opening act prior to Tom Dreesen, correct? 
Well, I don't know if he's the opening act. Pat Henry was, but they did work together, and Frank Sinatra liked him, and he had him in a couple of movies, and they were great pals, and I know they had a little falling out, and when I spoke to Shecky on the phone, uh, he said, you know, at one time, uh, for some reason, the relationship soured. Uh, and I asked Tommy about it, and he said, "Well, he said Sinatra loved Shecky Green." He said, "But you got to realize they were two of the same type of guys. They liked to drink a lot, and a lot of the conversations would end with an exclamation point." And he said, "That's really what happened." He said, "Unfortunately, they did have a little falling out, but uh, Tommy said Sinatra always loved Shecky Green." Well, first of all, I, uh, I, you know, most of my conversations, sober or inebriated end in a question mark rather than an exclamation point. But I love to see that there are still folks that can make it to 97 who with a history of heavy drinking. Uh, let's begin with uh, the name. I, I realize that Shecky Green, uh, his real name was Fred Greenfield. What was Shecky Green? Where did he get that very unique name from? Sure. Now, actually, his brother was Fred. His was Sheldon Greenfield. Oh, I stand corrected. Okay. So when he was a young boy, everyone, instead of calling him Sheldon, uh, his, uh, the nickname was Shelly, and his younger brother couldn't pronounce Shelly, and he said Shecky, and it stuck for the rest of his life. Wow. Okay. Now, um, you talked about a phone conversation that you had with Shecky Green. What was the nature of, uh, of your relationship? How long did you guys go back? Well, just friendly. Uh, I had spoken to Shecky uh, because actually I was looking for Pat Cooper. I hadn't spoken to Pat in so long, and I knew Pat was out in Vegas. And originally, the first time I spoke to Shecky was probably about 15 years ago because he came out of Chicago, uh, and um, there was a club that I was selling a lot of acts to called North Shore Center for the Performing Arts. I had sold them Tom Dreesen's show and Catskills on Broadway. And the uh, uh, booker, uh, Phyllis Cowan said, gee, you know, Shecky Green comes from this neighborhood. Can you get Shecky? And I got his phone number from a lady named uh, Kay Ballard, who had opened one of the Pat Cooper shows that I represented in Jersey. She said, oh, I lived in Palm Springs. I got Shecky's number. So I call him. And I said, this is about 15 years ago. I said, Sheck, I said, would you consider taking an offer for a job to go back into Chicago? Uh, he said, Ella, what are they offering me? I said, well, it's not what they're offering you. What kind of money do you want? How much are you charging? And he says, well, what does Don Rickles get? I said, how do I know what Don Rickles gets? <laughs> Just tell me what you get. And uh, he came up with a price. And I said, Sheck, when are you going to be available? Thinking maybe uh, in the spring or in the March. He said, I'm available tomorrow morning at nine. I said, no, 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 we can't do it tomorrow morning at nine. And we spoke about it, and uh, it worked out. He didn't take that date, but he was just a naturally funny guy. And then the last time I spoke with him was about three years ago on the phone, and we were discussing really in length uh, his career. And I didn't realize it, but he told me that in 1977, he became the first comedian to make $100,000 a week six weeks a year in Las Vegas at the Riviera and then the MGM Grand. And I said, Shaq, I said, they don't hold that many people. $100,000 a week in 1977 is like a million a week today. I said, how could you do it? He said, oh, what happened with him is he was only in a 500-seater at the Riviera, 
But the very wealthy people, for some reason, gravitated towards him as his as their comedian. So that 500 people were extremely wealthy people. And he said the idea for the casino, just bring people with money into this building. We'll find a way to get them in front of a dice table and maybe take $50,000 a clip from each one of them. <laughs> and he said that was it. And he became a big star in Las Vegas. The, um, for people that might be a little too young to remember Shecky Green uh, through anything other than um, video clips, in your view, what was the key to his humor and to his appeal? What made him so magnetic as a performer? Well, you know, I spoke to Jackie Mason and Pat Cooper exactly what you just said, because I said, you know, guys, Shecky isn't really a household name. He's not Rickles on The Tonight Show. He's not Bob Hope, but yes, he draws big crowds in Las Vegas. And both Pat and Jackie said he seemed to freeze up a little bit in front of a TV camera and that like eight minute jacket that you would get when you come on those shows. But they both told me, and you know, it's tough to get this type of compliments from a Pat Cooper and a Jackie Mason. They said, hell, when you put him on stage for an hour and 15 minutes, there was some type of magic, his relationship with the audience. He seemed to know every gag in the book. He was much more comfortable in front of a live audience, but in front of a camera, he would tighten up and those performances would not ignite. You know, uh, we're talking with Elliot Gordon. If uh, people are just tuning in, Elliot Gordon goes uh, all over the place and uh, performs at uh, or tells stories at uh, senior citizens facilities and elsewhere and features a lot of clips of a lot of uh, of legends. Shecky Green still gets a pop when you play clips of him, uh, Elliot? Well, no, you know something? He really doesn't, uh, Frank. You know, it's not like putting up a clip of Jerry Lewis or, mm-hmm. uh, or Jackie Mason or Pat Cooper or Don Rickles or Bob Hope. He doesn't have that name recognition, although in the industry, he was the guy I found that most of the comedians are looking up to. And now besides the senior communities that I play on a regular basis, I've started to go into theaters. I was at a theater in Plainview about six weeks ago doing the history of the comedians of the Catskills, uh, packed the house with several hundred people buying tickets of all ages. I'll be going back there on February 7th, and now I'm starting to go into legitimate theaters presenting these stories and these clips. For the older people, you could say, hey, it's memory lane you're a nostalgia show which in a way i am but for the younger people i'm getting people in my audience in their 20s and they say hey we don't know who these guys are maybe they know sinatra or don rickles but we know they are extremely entertaining and i've kind of become the bridge to a young generation and old show business and they're buying tickets to my presentations as well you know that's so interesting and, and that leads me to the next thing i was going to ask you about so many great stand-up comics over the years they developed an incredible level of fandom through starring on a sitcoms i'm thinking of people like jerry seinfeld uh, roseanne barr uh, bill cosby uh, others might have hosted um television talk shows 
folks like Jay Leno, for instance. Shecky Green did guest appearances on a lot of different talk shows over the years. It would be an occasional fill-in host on things like uh, the Merv Griffin Show, a guest star on maybe Laverne and Shirley and other shows, he never really got his own um, self-titled program, sitcom or talk show, the way, say, a Bob Newhart did. Two-part question, Elliot. One, why do you think Shecky never got that opportunity? Is it because of some of the, you know, uh, offstage issues that he's been very open about? And two, is the fact that he was never a household name in prime time, is that why a lot of younger people don't remember him? Yes, and uh, he was offered shows. Dean Martin used to have that extremely successful Thursday night variety show before he was doing the Dean Martin roast, 35, 40 million viewers a week, the top show on NBC. And when he would take the summer off, I know it was offered to Shecky Green to take for two months and he turned it down. He seemed to have, he wasn't comfortable with those shows. Uh, And Sheck did have a drinking problem and along the way he did make some wrong decisions. So he did get opportunities many times turned them down. Here in New York, my buddy, my teacher and mentor, Sid Bernstein, did present him at Carnegie Hall, and he said, El, he said, we didn't sell out. Shecky felt Sid didn't promote it as well as he could have, but Sid said it wasn't a name that you could just put on a marquee like a Jackie Mason, like a Don Rickles, and have those tickets fly. It just seemed to be a piece missing, despite the fact that he can go to Vegas and be worth a hundred grand a week. Wow, uh, that is wild. And you know, you and I have um, joked around about that joke that too many people to list have made about Frank Sinatra, where they talk about Frank Sinatra saving their life. It was actually Shecky Green that was the innovator of that joke, right? It's true with Shecky, and I believe that they were drinking a little too heavily one night, and for some reason, Sheck did have a drinking problem. He often spoke about it. I think he might have even hit Sinatra, and which is not a good idea. <laughs> and I think that that resulted in a, a response to that altercation. Uh, and, and again, uh, it was at a time, I believe, when Sinatra had him in a movie called Tony Rome. And in the scene in the movie, you could actually see him with a bandage on his head from that altercation. And they just seemed to mention in the film, well, gee, you had an accident. And he did have an accident. It was an unfortunate situation. But according to Tommy Dreesen, something Sinatra never held against him and always loved Shecky Green. And that's uh, obviously the joke was where he says Sinatra saved his life and uh, five of Sinatra's associates were were beating him. And then Sinatra says, "Okay, he's had enough. (laughs) Well, Shecky has another uh, uh, gag that he was saying that's a true thing. He had the drinking problem. He's driving his car in Las Vegas. For some reason, I guess he might have been drinking. He lost control. And he drove it into the fountain at at the Golden Nugget, the car right into the fountain. And supposedly, he said, when the police officer ran over to see if he's okay being drenched with water, he just looked at him and said, no wax. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot Gordon, it's always a treat uh, chatting with you. Thank you for uh, strolling down memory lane with us. Let's talk again soon. 
Thanks. Thanks very much, Frank. Loved being up late with you, as always. Thank you, Elliot Gordon. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you, and I think to myself. What a wonderful world I see skies of blue and Billy Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World A uh, birthday bumper music selection from uh, Vincent Gentili, a longtime friend of mine and a listener to this show. Not only his birthday today. But it's also his twin sister's birthday today. And interestingly enough, um, on this day, January 3rd in 1959, which was the day they were both born, the very day, the United States added a star to the national flag as Alaska became the 49th state of the Union. So both Vinnie Gentile and his sister, they are the same age as the state of Alaska. So a uh, big shout out and happy anniversary to our listeners listening in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, we're very, very happy to have so many great listeners out there. And um, I was just looking at a headline from the on, uh, K- KBYR 700 AM. Just looking at a headline in the Anchorage Daily Times. And the headline in the Anchorage Daily Times that day was, Ike says you're in now. Stroke of president's pen makes it official. I think that's great. I've never been to Alaska, but I'd love to go. I have, um, I've had a lot of family members and friends that have gone, and uh, they all say great things about it. I'd love to check it out. All right, 800-848-9222. Uh, hey, it's about that time of the week where it's time for us to name a listener of the week. This was a very tough week because there's a lot of people that could have been selected but if you look at the person or persons that meets as many of the 10 criteria as possible, frequency of listening, on-air calls slash contributions, quality of written correspondence, on-topic social media participation, insight, topic suggestion, or existing with guests, evangelism about the program, supporting me or my endeavors, subscribing to the podcast, longevity, and being nice. This is the first time... We are going to name a couple as listeners. And this is a couple that's been with us from the beginning. One of them's been a participant in the $1,000 Minute. The other was kind enough to put me in her will. Uh, I want to I wanna name this week's Listener of the Week as a couple, Tom Brodo and his longtime companion, Janice Grossman. 
Uh, congratulations, Tom and Janice. Thank you for your support of the program. As such, for the next week, whenever you're on hold, we're going to go to you first. And uh, you get to pick a bunch of the bumper music that we play tomorrow. So just shoot me an email with your bumper music selections. Frank.Morano at uh, RedAppleAudioNetworks.com. All right. A lot of you very patiently holding. We're going to get to as many of you as we can here. And then the Frankies after the top of the hour. Dennis is in Buffalo. Hello, Dennis. Hi. How you doing, Frank? I'm sitting here and uh, watching the fall in Niagara Falls. And it's had a couple comments uh, regarding boxing and the voting. Sure, lay it on us, Dennis. All right, in boxing, if they would just put a rule, make a rule, uh, saying you can't lean on the boxer, you know, otherwise you get the points deducted. If you took that away, I think that would help. They had boxing since the 600s when the Olympic, you know, in the uh, uh, Athens, they had it. the first boxing Olympics was sometime in 600. They're always going to have boxing as long as you have the human, comp- you know, competitive sense in people. There's going to be boxing, but they got to change the rules a little bit. That'll improve it. Um, there's that and voting. What they need to do, and this will make voters better all around, is start a system now where in school, I guess starting in seventh and eighth grade, right on through high school, so but about maybe 13, 12, 13 to 17. You're given a test, and if it's a civics-type test where it includes current events, knowledge of issues, government organization understanding, and, and, and the essay as to why the teen wants to vote. Started at, I don't know, say, say 13. And if that person passes that test, if they're good enough to present that kind of knowledge, then they can vote. I think that... And that'll prepare the knowledge as an adult Uh for better voting in the future. It'll also inspire their federal students. If some 17-year-old sees this 13-year-old got the right to vote, what's that going to do to that 17-year-old? He's going to be studying. Yeah, Dennis, I like... Dennis, I love the idea of some sort of a a, a test, some sort of a citizenship test similar to what immigrants to this country have to face when they become citizens. Even I am not willing to go down to 13. I I just think that's a bridge too far. Um, I'm not sure you can get away with it constitutionally, even for minors, but I think it's worth thinking about. I think it's a very interesting point for the reasons that you mentioned. A citizenship test. Four teenagers who want to vote. I like it. Your influence counts. Use it.